Hi, my name is Margaret. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 10, 14 to 17. Clearly, the Lord owns the sky, the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. But the Lord adored your ancestors, loving them and choosing the descendants that followed them, you, from all other people. That's how things still stand. So circumcise your hearts and stop being so stubborn, because the Lord your God is the God of all gods and Lord of all lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God who doesn't play favorites and doesn't take bribes. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Diana. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 2, verses 25 through 29 from the Century English Bible. Circumcision is an advantage if you do what the law says. But if you are a person who breaks the law, your status of being circumcised has changed into not being circumcised. So if the person who isn't circumcised keeps the law, won't his status of not being circumcised be counted as if he were circumcised? The one who isn't physically circumcised but keeps the law will judge you. You became a lawbreaker after you had the written law and circumcision. It isn't the Jew who maintains outward appearances who will receive praise from God, and it isn't people who are outwardly circumcised on their bodies. Instead, it is the person who is a Jew inside, who is circumcised in spirit, not literally. That person's praise doesn't come from the people, but from God. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Bill. Thank you for standing uh, for the reading of the gospel. Uh, today's gospel comes from Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28. How terrible it will be for you legal experts and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and plate but inside you are full of violence and pleasure-seeking. Blind to Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of the cup will be clean too. How terrible it will be for you legal experts and Pharisees. Hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs. They look beautiful on the outside, but inside they are full of dead bones and all kinds of filth. In the same way, you look righteous to people, but inside you are full of pretense and rebellion. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we come before you this morning who, as people who want to be clean on the inside, who want to not look righteous but to actually be righteous be the kind of people who are set right in Jesus and made right by the Spirit so that we might live right in the world for the sake of your kingdom. But we know that only comes from you. So help us, transform us from the inside out that we 
might be your people in the world for the sake of your kingdom. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, again, welcome you to New Life Downtown. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we are absolutely delighted that you're here with us this morning, and we hope and pray that you encounter the presence of the risen Jesus at work in our midst. This morning as we begin, I want to reiterate something that Pastor Glenn said last week as we began our service. Over the last couple of weeks, we have watched our news cycle be filled with horrific acts of violence and despicable expressions of hate. We've seen them not only in places like Charlottesville, but we've actually seen them much closer to home. Uh, About two or so weeks ago, someone took a spray can to a local Jewish temple over in the Old North End, just about a mile away from here, and spray painted a swastika and anti-Semitic sayings on their building. That same night, somebody took a spray can um, to cars in a primarily black neighborhood and spray painted the the, the cars with racist slurs. These are not things that are only happening somewhere else. These are things that are happening in the context of our own city. And we want to make it really clear that the church is called to stand with God against these kinds of acts of hate and violence. Amen? I recognize the painful reality of some of these stories is that sometimes it's people who claim Christ and particularly people who would classify themselves as white male Christians who are holding the paint can. And that's something we have to acknowledge that historically we have at times, people who call themselves Christians stood with this kind of rhetoric rather than against it. And if you have ever experienced that from the church, we want you to know how sorry we are. That is not the way of Jesus by any means. Jesus comes to actually remove those barriers and bring all of us together in Christ. So those who say that this is partnering with the work of God are actually working against the very thing that he wants to do. What he wants to do is to bring all people of every tribe and tongue and nation together in him for the glory of his Father. And anyone that acts against that actually actually acts against what Jesus came to do. And recognize that a lot of that, too, is oftentimes perpetuated by the way that people misuse Scripture. That oftentimes there are Scriptures that get mentioned in the middle of these kinds of conversations. That at times people have perpetuated notions of national, racial, ethnic, gender, and socioeconomic superiority by appealing to Scripture. One of my seminary professors says that any text, any biblical text, without a context is just a pretext to say whatever you want. This is frequently what's happening is people are just taking text and saying, well, see, it says here, missing out on the fact of exactly what is happening in the text itself. And what over and over and over and over and over the scriptures do is that they address these notions of superiority and subvert them. 
and say, yeah, you think it's this, but no, it's this, to, in order for everybody to understand that our hope is in Jesus alone for all of us. And we're going to find that actually happening in the context of our text today, that we're in the middle of a series through the letter of Romans. And so this is week two in this series, and we're walking through sort of chapter by chapter, and what we find is Paul addressing divisions in the church in Rome, and talking particularly about ethnic divisions, the kind of things that were rampant within their community that were impacting their way of life together and their witness to the world around them. So a little bit about the letter of Romans. Romans is written by Paul probably around 57 AD or so while he's in Corinth. And the church in Rome actually began as an entirely Jewish community. It's most likely that those who experienced the Spirit on the day of Pentecost went back to Rome and began to meet together in the name of Jesus. But as it happened with all of these churches, that eventually the gospel went global. And it moved beyond the Jewish community and into the Gentile community. And these two groups who lived previously in hostility to one another are now brought together in Jesus and learning what it means to live in a new way as new people in a new community, as new family with people that they used to think were something else. But what happens within the first several years of the church is that the emperor Claudius actually bans Jews from Rome, kicks all of the Jews out. So you had was a Jewish community, a Jewish Jewish Christian church that became both Jew and Gentile. Now it became predominantly Gentile as the Jews were exiled away. Well, then in the mid-50s, another emperor, Nero, invited all the Jews to come back. And so now all of a sudden, Jews are coming back to Rome, back to the church that they started, and finding that the church has been led and run by all Gentiles for several years. And all of a sudden, what happens is that there are divisions and debates and problems happening all throughout the community. And Paul is planning to come and visit the church. But before he visits, he writes this letter so he can start to address some of these issues before he gets there. This is the sort of thrust of his letter. He's coming to preach the gospel, but recognizing he's coming to preach the gospel in a place that is largely divided. And so what he does throughout the letter is he clarifies what the gospel is and then begins to apply it specifically to their context. So last week when we talked about Romans chapter 1, we recognized in the first 17 or so verses of Romans, we see as Paul describing exactly what the gospel is. He says the, the gospel is God's good news about Jesus. This is what the gospel is. It's good news about what God is doing in and through Jesus. It is a proclamation of the victory that God has won over sin and death through the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is what the gospel is. The gospel, because it's a proclamation of God's victory, is also the power of God to save everyone who believes, both Jew and Gentile. He frequently mentions these two groups together in the letter because of the divisions that are happening in them. He says, no, the gospel is actually for everyone. And then he goes on and he says that really what God is doing is he's putting all things back together and proving himself faithful. And in the midst of doing that, he's creating for himself a people who live with faithful obedience. 
that this is really the thrust of the gospel, is to deliver us from sin and empower us to live in a new way in the world, to help us to live in faithful obedience. Then immediately after that, Paul changes his tune really quickly. Not because he is no longer saying anything about the gospel, but he then switches and says, okay, now let me tell you why the gospel is necessary. Why is it that Jesus had to come and do what Jesus did? Why is the gospel necessary? And he says the reason that we need the good news is because we have some bad news to talk about. And so for several chapters, he talks about some bad news, uh, which is where we are today in the midst of all of this uh, sermon series. But last week, he transitions and he says, here's the first thing. So there are people, they, they knew God. But rather than honoring God, rather than giving God thanks, what they did was that they dishonored him. And they became darkened in their, or they became defective in their thinking, darkened in their hearts, and their order, their desires became disordered, and really they began to live out their lives in dehumanizing ways. So here, here's the reason for the good news is, because God made himself known, but people rejected him. And not only did they reject him, but it actually had a totally dehumanizing effect on people. That we became less than human. We no longer were image bearers. But what's really interesting in the middle of all this is that Paul is speaking in that whole section in the third person. He says, they, they knew God but they didn't honor him. Instead, they exchanged the truth for a lie and they worshiped created things rather than the creator. They did this, they did this, they did this, they did this. Those people, those over there, they, they, they. There's a sense as we're reading what Paul's saying that he's likely addressing the idea of Gentiles. Paul himself is Jewish. He's saying this is what the Gentiles did. They worshiped other gods. They gave themselves up to these kinds of things, and they became less than human. And so if you're a member of the Jewish community, and you're coming back into Rome, and Paul, a Jewish Christian celebrity, begins to say these things about Gentiles, what are you starting to think? Yeah! Paul's on our side. This is them. They're the problem. Right? It's all of these Gentiles. The reason we're having troubles in the church is because of them, certainly not because of us. And this, Paul's logic actually follows another book written in that time period. So between the Old Testament and New Testament, there are several books written. One of them is called The Wisdom of Solomon. It's a Jewish book that basically says Gentiles are the problem and God's going to get them. And lets sort of the Jewish folks off the hook. says, like, even if we sin, it's really not as bad as them. And after all, we're your people, you chose us, so we're good. How we live really doesn't matter. But those Gentiles over there, they are a huge, huge problem. So Paul kind of follows this progression. So if you're a member of the Roman church and you're a Jew, you're thinking, yes, vindication. He's going to put the Gentiles back in their place. And it's going to help resolve all of this. But interestingly, here's what happens in Romans chapter 2, is that Paul suddenly switches from third person to second person. And rather than addressing Gentiles, he starts addressing Jews. So on the one hand, we've got our iTunes match up here. This is really nice. On the one hand, in the beginning part of chapter 1, he's subverting 
Gentile claim of superiority. And now in chapter 2, he's going to start subverting Jewish claim to superiority. He says this, he says, so every single one of you who judges others is without any excuse. You condemn yourself when you judge another person because the one who is judging is actually doing the same things. We know that God's judgment agrees with the truth and his judgment is against those who do these kinds of things. So Paul said, hey, hey, not so fast. Don't be so quick to judge. says, you are actually doing the same things that you're condemning. This is Paul's way of saying, hey, Jews, Gentiles, you're not as different as you think you are. You're not that different. Paul's actually kind of picking up what Jesus was saying all along. Jesus said all kinds of things like, hey, don't judge. Why do you spend so much time trying to remove the splinter from your eye when you've got this huge log sticking out of your own? First, take the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly. You've got more problems than you realize. You're magnifying what's going on in somebody else and minimize what's going on in you. Or he tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector who went up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee stood in the temple and said, God, thank you that I'm not like those people. Thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there. And the tax collector went to the temple to pray and broke down and said, Father, have mercy on me for I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, it's the tax collector who walked away justified, not the Pharisee. So I think the reality that we all have to kind of deal with at some point in our lives is that there's a Pharisee in all of us. And there's a Pharisee living inside of every single one of us. We compare the best in ourselves to the worst in others. And in doing so, we sort of assume a place of moral superiority. Hey, look at me. We minimize our sins and we maximize the sins of others. We justify all of our wrongs. We have reasons for them, explanations. Like, ah, you know, the reason this happened because of this, and, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. But in others, we see everything they do as intentional and cruel and manipulative and patterned behavior. This is not simply accidental. This is who they are. This even shows up in our lives in really, really little ways, like when we're driving, right? So when we're driving down the road and all of a sudden we cut somebody off, right? Oh, I'm so sorry. Like if you knew, like I'm new to town and I don't know where all the exits are and I realized because Siri told me late that I need to get off here, like that's why I did it. I don't normally not pay attention when I'm driving and cut people off. This is a one-time thing only. But when somebody does it to us, I mean, all kinds of fury comes up inside of us and we assume this person is just a horrible driver all of the time and we are simply the victims of it today and somebody else is going to be the victim of it five minutes from now because this person's got problems and somebody should revoke their license immediately. Right? I mean, it comes out in these places where it's like, ah, it's not really a big deal when I do it, but when somebody else does it, oh my or we do this at work, right? If we make a mistake on a project or somebody doesn't like the way we do something, it's like, well, I know better. 
Like they don't know what they're talking about or ah, it's just a little mistake, I'll fix it. It's really not that big of a deal. But if we don't like the way somebody else does something, like maybe I should go and talk to my supervisor because I think it's time for like a change, <laughs> right? Or somebody makes a mistake and we think, I no longer want to work that person ever again. They are a horrible teammate, a bad coworker, and they're giving our entire company a bad name. We have this kind of response. Martin Luther one time said this. He said, the unrighteous look for good in themselves and evil in others. But the righteous are eager to see the good in others and overlook their own. See, we convince ourselves, not only are we morally superior, but we convince ourselves that God agrees with our assessment. God agrees with how we see ourselves and how we see other people. We believe that God will give us the same path that we give ourselves and that he'll render the same verdict against those repeat offenders in our life as we do. And us, we're like, oh, but God knows my heart. He knows I'm a good person. He knows that this was just a slip up and it'll never happen again. It's really not that big of a deal. And when it comes to others, we're like, well, God's going to get them. He's going to give them what they deserve. He is going to come down on them. And if he needs somebody to deliver the message, I'd be more than happy to be his prophet to my Nineveh. I'll be happy to deliver his message of judgment whenever he gives me the chance to do so. And what Paul is saying is that this itself is actually a form of idolatry. The Gentiles were accused of idolatry, right? Of replacing the creator with the created. The same is true when we judge. The creature takes the place of the creator and says, we're going to be the ones who render judgment. Judgment that only God himself can give. He goes on, he says this, he says, if you judge those who do these kinds of things while you do the same things yourself, think about this. Do you believe that you will escape God's judgment? Do you really think that God's going to give you a pass when you're doing the same things that they are? Or do you have contempt for the riches of God's generosity, tolerance, and patience? Don't you realize that God's kindness was supposed to lead you to change your heart and your life, but instead you're storing up wrath for yourself because of your stubbornness and your heart that refuses to change. So God's just judgment will be revealed on the day of wrath. God will repay everyone based on their works. Jumping down to verse 6, God does not have favorites. Paul is writing within this context of his Jewish audience at this point, having this claim of superiority, and he's subverting it, and he's saying, hey, you know what? Your judgmental attitude actually reveals that you have contempt for God's riches. So you have received God's grace. And his kindness to you is supposed to lead you to repentance. But instead of changed hearts, what what God finds is stubborn and unrepentant ones. And rather than finding humble obedience to the way of the Lord, instead he finds prideful disobedience. Therefore, Jews will be judged just like Gentiles. Everybody's on the same page. Is what Paul's establishing This is part of his reason of saying this is why the gospel is necessary. So we can summarize it this way. He says God's judgment is inclusive 
everybody and impartial. There are no favorites because his plans are universal. His plans are for everyone, not just for one group. And his purposes are just. He's motivated by the desire to set all things right. He's just. Let's unpack this a little bit. The first thing we have to kind of take notice is the simple fact that God judges. We recognize this as part of our creed. We say we, we believe that he will come again to judge the living and the dead, but it's the part of the creed that we want to kind of rush past. <laughs> or when we find passages in Scripture that talk about God's wrath or God's anger or God's judgment, we're like, let's just go to the next page. <laughs> like, surely there's something over here that's going to be more fun or easy to read. There's something about the idea of God as a judge that unsettles us a little bit. It feels uncomfortable talking about these kinds of things. And yet, what we've bought into is this idea that for God to be a judge means he can't be loving. That there's something about this that says, well, no, God is gracious and compassionate. He's a God of love and grace and mercy. Therefore, he can't be a God of anger or wrath or judgment. And we bought into the idea that has to be either or, but the scriptures continually say is actually it's both and. That God is both good and great. He is both loving and gracious, and he's holy. He is both merciful, and he is just. They all go together. It's not either or, it's both and. I think this is why the Old Testament over and over and over and over again uh, instructs the people of God to both love him and to fear him, to hold both of them together. One of my professors put it this way when he was writing about Deuteronomy. He said, ancient Israel has here learned that love and fear are not in fact mutually exclusive but they complement each other so that love prevents terror and fear prevents irreverent familiarity. I love that. There's a, it's important that we keep the two of them together. God is good, and so he calls for our affection. And God is great, so he calls for our reverence of him. I think this challenge for us when we think about God as judge, the reason it unsettles us so much is that our own judgments are so biased. And when we think about the way that humans judge, we recognize that everything that we judge is biased in some way. That we have a very limited perspective and oftentimes we have a selfish agenda. We want to elevate ourselves even if that comes at the expense of other folks. But what Paul is saying here is that God's judgment is just and it's universal. In other words, his judgment is consistent. It's the same for everybody. It's according to the same standard. His, his judgment is true because he actually has a perfect perspective of every situation. He knows the thoughts and attitudes of everyone's heart and all that led into that event and everything that corresponded it. He sees what it is that we can't see. His perspective is perfect. And his uh, judgment is effective. It actually enacts and accomplishes justice. It actually makes things right. It brings things together and set things in the way that he originally intended them to be, where oftentimes our judgment just tends to be divisive. 
that rather than making things right, it seems to make things more distinct. What Paul is saying is that there is no justice, there's no setting things to right without judgment. God cannot put all things together without condemning the things that tore them apart in the first place and saying, no, that is wrong, that is sin, that is evil. This causes that, so that's judged so that we might have this. We oftentimes in our parenting try to teach our kids lessons before they're ready to learn them. I don't know if anybody else does that. And so when our oldest, Cora, was three or four years old, uh, we decided it was time for her to uh, learn a lesson about promise keeping. So she had promised to do something, and then she didn't do it. And so we were trying to explain to her the impact of breaking your promise in the midst of, conver- uh, midst of relationships. In, you know, it's a very abstract idea for a three or four-year-old. And so as we're trying to explain it to her, Sarah's talking to her in the kitchen, and all of a sudden, with all sincerity and innocence, Cora just looks up and she goes, oh, I know, I'll just put it back together. I broke a promise, no big deal. I'll just put it back together and we can go on and be done with this lecture that you're trying to give me. See, there's something inside of us that recognizes things are broken and wants them to be put back together. And sometimes there's part of us that thinks, oh, it's just so easy. Well, just put it back together. What we have to recognize is the brokenness isn't just out there. The brokenness is in here, right? And so we actually need someone to set us right before we can do anything to help set the world right. And the only person that can do that is God coming in Jesus, the one who lived a perfect life to be able to be the one who set things back together. The third thing that Paul says is that God's judgment is inclusive and impartial. Now, for him to say that Jews and Gentiles are actually not that different would have probably been pretty offensive, especially given the anticipation that maybe the Jewish audience had after the first chapter. To say that God doesn't play favorites, even though it occurs elsewhere, like in Deuteronomy, would have been shocking. Surely his, his Jewish audience would have said, election has to count for something, right? Like, you chose us. What do you mean you don't have favorites? Like, you remember that whole thing with Abraham? Like, you chose us? There's got to be something here, right? And oftentimes what happened was that the perspective of election became that election meant that they were exempt from judgment. But what Jesus and Paul, joining with the Old Testament prophets, say is that Israel's election does not exempt them from judgment. If anything, it amplifies it. It's sort of the way that we sometimes think about with our, our firstborn kids. Right? Our firstborn kids are the ones who've been in our house the longest. They're the ones who spent the most time with us. They should know how everything should go, right? And so when they do something that sort of violates the integrity of our family, um, they t- tend to get a little bit more of our attention than when, say, the youngest does who's been with us longer, who's younger, who doesn't quite know yet. So there's a sense in the scriptures that Israel is God's firstborn. That he did choose them. He did say, come and be my people, and I want to be your God. 
But there was a purpose behind that which was actually for the world. God blessed Abraham in order that they might be a blessing. He instructed Abraham to say, hey, come and keep the way of the Lord by doing justice and righteousness, by actually living the way that God would live in the world, by being the kind of people that help put the world back together, not the kind of people that tear the world apart. And their election meant responsibility, not exemption, because they were instrumental in God's plan. And part of the thing that Paul has to address in Romans is how is it that in and through Jesus, that God is being faithful to his promises to Israel, at the same time addressing the fact that Israel has failed to keep its promises to God, has failed to do the very things that God's intended for them to do. And so their election does not exempt them from judgment and actually amplifies it in some way. This was really difficult for Paul's Jewish audience. And he expects that. He expects them to have some objections. So he goes in for the rest of the chapter to talk a whole lot about the law and circumcision, which makes this a really fun sermon. Judgment and circumcision over and over and over again. You should think, I'm so glad I came to church today. But the first thing he says that, that expects is, but wait a minute, we have the law and the Gentiles don't. We've got this, they don't have it. So there's a claim of superiority in the midst of that, right? And Paul actually goes on to say that everybody has the law in some form. In chapter one, he said everybody has some access to knowing who God is because God's made himself known in creation. And then in chapter two, he says actually everybody has some access to the law through human conscience, has some understanding that murder is wrong have some understanding that, that stealing is wrong. There is something, some sort of access. And then he goes on to say what doesn't matter, so what matters more is not possessing the law, but doing the law. It's more important to actually do what God requires than to possess knowledge of what God requires. That this is more important, to do the law, not to have any, subverts that claim. And they said, well, what about circumcision? We're circumcised, they're not, that's obeying the law. We've done that, they haven't. So clearly, there's something about us that's better than them. And Paul then goes and says this. He says, circumcision is an advantage. There is value to being part of this community of people if you do what the law says. But if you are a person who breaks the law, your status of being circumcised has changed into not being circumcised. So if the person who isn't circumcised keeps the law, won't his status of not being circumcised be counted as if he were circumcised? So the one who isn't physically circumcised but keeps the law will actually judge you. You became a lawbreaker after you had the written law and circumcision. You had these things. They were God's gifts. They were God's kindness. They were God's grace. And they're supposed to lead to repentance, to changed hearts and changed lives. And instead it didn't. Instead it just left you standing above and judging others while doing the very same things that they are doing. See, circumcision is supposed to be a sign of the covenant. 
Now, oftentimes what happened is people thought it was the substance of it or a substitute for it. It's supposed to be a sign of their relationship with God and their purpose in the world, not a substitute for it. And signs are valuable insofar as they actually point to, the reality, to a reality beyond themselves. Circumcision was supposed to identify, to point to the people that God had given his commands to this, so they might keep his commands in the world and display to the world what God is like. But when they lived in disobedience, actually negated circumcision because it no longer pointed to what it was supposed to point to. That disobedience negated its value or emptied it in some way. I think we understand this a little bit in our world. I experienced this uh, in my 20s um, when I would wear a particular t-shirt. When I was uh, in high school, I had a chance to go and visit Harvard on like some academic nerdy thing. And I had to, while I was there, you know, buy a crimson t-shirt. And then in my 20s, when I'd be wearing this Harvard shirt, people would come up to me like, oh, did you go to Harvard? No, I went to Oral Roberts University. (laughs) And suddenly, like, the disappointment would just come over their face. They're like, how can you wear a Harvard shirt? You went to, like, a strange Christian school in Oklahoma. (laughs) These are not the same things. There's something about it wasn't pointing. People don't do this when you wear a Michigan shirt, right? Because they just think you're a football fan. But nobody buys Harvard shirts for the sports, right? People buy Harvard shirts because they went to school there and they want to, like, display, hey, I went to Harvard. And then the disappointment would come and, like, oh, you actually didn't. And somehow the T-shirt meant less than the people that were viewing it. Maybe at a more serious level, we can think about something like wedding rings. Wedding rings are supposed to symbolize the fact that we have made a covenant of fidelity to somebody, that we have promised to be faithful to another person with the entirety of our lives for as long as we both live. And when we go and act in infidelity while wearing a wedding ring, it somehow empties it of its value and no longer points to a promise that you've made. Instead, it becomes an indictment about a promise you've broken. The symbol changes because of our inability or our unwillingness to actually fulfill the promises associated with it. Paul's saying the same thing about circumcision. So where is he bringing this all to? He said all of these things in chapter 1, now he says them all in chapter 2. Here's the point he's getting to. He says everyone's guilty of breaking God's law. Chapter 1, Gentiles, guilty. Chapter 2, Jews, guilty. Chapter 3, in case you missed it, everybody, guilty. Just blows it up and says, hey, in case you missed it, in case you tried to distance yourself from either one of these groups, all guilty, all in need of the gospel, all in need of Jesus, all in need of someone to come and to do for you what you couldn't do for yourselves. All on the same page. Jews, Gentiles, everyone. And Paul's going to go on and say a whole lot more than this. And the whole letter kind of sets and establishes this framework. But he begins to tip his hand to hope at the end of this passage. 
And here's what he says. Paul oftentimes does this. He starts to show us his cards before he's ready to play them. He says, it isn't the Jew who maintains outward appearances who receive praise from God. And it isn't people who are outwardly circumcised in their bodies. Instead, it is the person who is a Jew inside, who is circumcised in the spirit, not literally. That person's praise doesn't come from people, but from God. He's picking up on language that was uh, prolific throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all spoke of a time when God would come and circumcise people's hearts, when he would put his law inside of us, when he would actually write it on, on the inside of us, that he would give us a new heart and a new spirit. Why? So that we might actually keep God's law. And what Paul is saying is that time has come. That he, this is actually what God is doing in and through Jesus. And he's doing it not just for the Jews. He's also doing it for Gentiles. That what God is doing is he's setting people right in Jesus. Those who have lived wrong are being made and set right in relationship with God in and through Jesus. And then he's making people right by the Spirit. That this is the gospel. He's setting us right. And then he's also making us right. He's saving us by grace through faith, or through our faith in Jesus, not by our works. And yet he's also creating us in Christ so that we might do good works and God might be glorified in heaven. We're not saved by those things, but we're saved in order to be able to do things that we could not do in and of ourselves. He's setting us right, and he's making us right. And our faith in Jesus actually begins to make us faithful. The gospel was designed to bring us to faithful obedience. And faithful obedience doesn't come about through our increased effort, just by trying harder and gritting our teeth and saying, I'm going to do it right this time. But it comes about through the finished work of Jesus and the ongoing work of the Spirit. And it's something that we all need. Every single one of us, it's the gospel who gives us a new identity in Jesus and makes us new people by the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work, following the work of Jesus, that makes obedience possible. And why does that matter? It matters because then when the time comes, God's judgment will be just. Because the faithful God has made a way for the faithless to become faithful. He's found a way to set us right and make us right in and through Jesus. And that is our good news. Amen?